inspiring is a label people with disabilities tend to despise. Time after time, they are told by able-bodied people that they are inspiring just for doing the ordinary tasks of life, taking care of their children, supporting themselves and their families with a job, graduating from college, leaving the house. You can see how this grates on a person's nerves. For one thing, it betrays an assumption that disabled people are usually incapable of ordinary tasks. I think we can all understand this if we imagine ourselves receiving such comments. If I rescue someone from a burning building, go ahead and tell me how amazing I am. But if you're amazed when you see me tie my shoes, then it's clear your expectations of me must have been pretty low. For another, a subtext of you're so inspiring is often it's strange to be happy while still being disabled. If someone thinks a person with a disability is, is inspiring just for going about daily life, then it seems like they think it would be or <clears throat> should be so awful to have that disability that they can't imagine carrying on. That's not a very nice thing to say to someone. And also, no one likes to be reduced to one characteristic. It's objectifying. A disability is just one among dozens of important aspects of a person. And when able-bodied people give so much attention to it, it's as if they see only that, not the person at all. The you're so inspiring phenomenon is so widely recognized and disdained by people with disabilities that there's a shorthand for it. Disability, I'm sorry, inspiration porn. I'm laying all this out there so that you'll know what I mean and what I don't mean when I say that the disability liberation movement is incredibly inspiring. The disabled people who have exercised their rights, brought about greater recognition of those rights, and continue to expand them inspire me, not because they're so amazing considering they have disabilities, Blech. but because they are amazing people, period. They know so much about how to organize, how to sustain a struggle, how to protest injustice, and forge better ways. Anyone who wants to make this world a better place can learn a lot from these activists. In a word, they are leaders. So today, I want to share a couple stories from the fight for disability rights. This sermon was scheduled for January 17th, Martin Luther King, Day, uh, King Jr. Day weekend, but I fell ill this morning. Theda, who was the worship associate, noted the irony of my being temporarily disabled. It's true, my disability was very short-lived, but a disability is often defined as a condition that limits a person's ability to engage in a major life activity. And I had a condition that kept me from working. My employer provided accommodation. Well done. If you missed the service too, please do look it up on our website or YouTube channel so that you can see Theta's reflection and other parts of the service. Today's is all new.
Anyway, the point is we scheduled this topic for the MLK weekend because the parallels and influences of these two movements for civil rights are powerful. In 1973, Congress passed and President Nixon signed the Rehabilitation Act. In some ways, it was a simple extension of a 50-year-old law. But Section 504 was like an acorn embedded in that law. It provided that any program or activity that received financial assistance from the federal government had to be open to all otherwise qualified people regardless of disability. This was a turning point. It made disability a matter of civil rights. And when people with disabilities began to cite Section 504 and insist on its enforcement, that acorn grew and grew and split the foundation of exclusion that had oppressed people with disabilities for our country's entire history. Public schools receive federal funding. So do universities and mass transit systems and public housing developments. Until the passage of Section 504, it was legal for a school to say, we don't have a teacher who can handle your intellectual disability. We can't educate you. It was legal for bus drivers to refuse a ride to a person who couldn't climb the stairs to get in. It was legal for a federally funded apartment building or university building to have no ramps or elevators. The nation's infrastructure had been designed for those without disabilities, the temporarily able-bodied, as we are often called. Now, it had to change. It quickly became clear that that change was going to cost a lot of money, and the government balked at actually creating the regulations that the law required. President Carter, who had promised to do so, instead punted to his Secretary of Housing, Education, and Welfare, Hugh, Joseph Califano. Califano wanted to keep the law toothless. In April of 1977, four years after Section 504 became law, its promise was still unfulfilled. But disabled folks had been organizing. And on April 5th, they held sit-ins at the eight regional offices of Hugh all around the country. Kitty Cohn, a Bay Area organizer, whose words you heard earlier, wrote, a broad cross-disability coalition began building for a rally on April 5th, knowing we'd sit in afterwards. We set up committees to take on different tasks, such as rally speakers, media, fundraising, medics, monitors, publicity, and outreach. The outreach committee was very successful in garnering broad community support from churches, unions, civil rights organizations, gay groups, elected politicians, radical parties, and others. After the rally, the protesters entered the federal building and climbed to the regional director's office on the fourth floor. No elevators. He made no promises to enact Section 504, so they refused to leave. 
They were there for 26 days, by far the longest of any of the eight sit-ins. And one thing that made it possible here in San Francisco was the network of community support they had created. Cohn wrote, the International Association of Machinists facilitated our sending a delegation to Washington. Politicians sent mattresses and a shower hose to attach to the sink. Glide Memorial Church and the Black Panther Party sent many delicious meals that nourished us between days of coffee and donuts. And they didn't just sit. They analyzed their media coverage, trained spokespeople, called news conferences. The FBI cut off the phones. But the activists made their own ways of communicating directly with the world outside. Deaf members of the community signed out the window to people across the street and exchanged messages about what was happening in the building and what the responses were in the press and the government. Without a refrigerator, it was hard to keep food for long or keep medicine stable, but one of the activists knew his stuff. He ran tubing from an office air conditioner and with just that and the materials on hand, created a makeshift fridge. The sit-in was entirely peaceful, but it disrupted the business of the department, not just in San Francisco, but back in Washington. All eyes were on this one federal building and the people who would not leave until the government followed its own laws. Finally, in response to the sit-in and the delegation sent to Washington, D.C., the administration gave in and Section 504 became a reality at last. Throughout this action and many others in the 1970s, as Kitty Cohn said, the movement for the rights of people with disabilities hearkened to the civil rights movement of just 10 and 20 years before. They carried signs that said, we shall overcome. And as Kitty, Kitty Cohn said, signs that said, we can't even sit in the back of the bus. They rewrote a civil rights anthem with words about Section 504 and the Carter administration, reusing the refrain, keep your eyes on the prize, hold on. They used techniques like sit-ins and street actions that had served African Americans and their allies. And people like the Reverend Cecil Williams and his Glide Memorial Church and the, the members of the Black Panther Party recognized their siblings in struggle, recognized that this was another chapter in the same book, compelling the United States to keep the promises implicit in its ideals and include those who had been shut out. But disabled people's liberation movement did not begin only after the civil rights movement. For as long as they had been regarded with derision, disgust, or at best pity, they had responded with self-respect and perseverance, insisting on their dignity and equality. In the 1930s, for example, as the country strove to emerge from the Great Depression, people with disabilities saw that they were going to be sent to the back of the line 
or left out altogether. Programs such as the Works Progress Administration, the WPA, were being set up to put people back to work. But when people with disabilities came to the Emergency Relief Bureau asking for WPA jobs, the Bureau wouldn't refer them. Half a dozen New York City residents responded by forming the League of the Physically Handicapped in 1935. At the League's zenith, it had several hundred members. Their first action was a sit-in. They eventually won the creation of 1,500 jobs for New Yorkers with disabilities. I don't know whether those who sat in at Woolworths were aware of this precursor to their strategy, but the thread runs back through both liberation movements. Like the struggle for African-American civil rights, the disability rights movement has been led with intelligence, creativity, perseverance, shrewdness, community building, humor, and song. Both compelled a nation to recognize their rights as human rights. Before 504, Disability was defined as a medical issue, but with Section 504, that imperfect and never fully realized law, and with 1990's Americans with Disabilities Act, for which it paved the way, disability was understand, understood at last as a matter of civil rights. It wasn't a flaw in the people that caused the problem. It was a flaw in the country that denied their rights and their full humanity. As Judy Human, one of the leaders of the movement for 504 and still today says, we are not the ones who need to change. Like African-Americans who declared as immortalized in the title of a 1970 civil rights documentary, I am somebody. People with disabilities have had to insist upon their somebodiness against a legal system, education system, medical system that would not acknowledge their full humanity. They were dismissed as subhuman, regarded as malformed monsters, who had to be hidden from view by the so-called ugly laws that governed many cities and entire states for a century, and gradually and reluctantly seen instead as objects of pity. But chanting, I, I, I am somebody, people with disabilities have claimed their personhood and their power. And, like all liberation movements, both of these, both of these have made not just their obvious constituents, but everyone more free. In the case of disability rights, one reason is that a full 25% of us are disabled, according to the Centers for Disease Control. And as we age, we are more and more likely to have a disability. <coughs> Until by age 90, almost all of us have significant disabilities of cognition, hearing, mobility, 
and or vision. If we live long, we will almost certainly leave the ranks of the able-bodied and benefit from the equality and freedom for which the disability rights movement has fought so hard. But there is another sense in which activists for disability rights have freed us all. They have broadened our society, which used to put potential leaders like Judy Human and Kitty Cohn into institutions. They have given us the gifts that we would have denied ourselves. Disabled people have always proclaimed their own power. It was not hard to fill our service with great words and music written by people with disabilities again today as we did on the 17th. Because Tchaikovsky and Beethoven, Laurel Sheridan and Teresa Soto, Jorge Luis Borges and Robert Hensel have all fought free of the limits that a callous, condescending world has tried to impose. But how many others have fought and still lost? How many voices never emerged from the prisons masquerading as schools and hospitals? How many have died at the hands of police who attacked what they feared and could not understand? These are immeasurable losses, not just for these people and their families, but for everyone. Here too, we have a long way to go, but in disabled disability rights activists, we have amazing leaders to guide us. <laughs>